Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. In the interactions I have in counseling with people, uh, certain themes come up, and when they come up, that's just what I will use as a topic to give a talk about. I sort of uh, allow just uh, the one-on-one work to sort of determine what uh, are germane topics. So this theme has been coming up a lot. Uh, with various people I've worked with who have had at one time or another really painful relationships with uh, individuals that uh, wind up over the course of the relationship taking on abusive qualities. Um, so to uh, have a grasp on some of the uh, types of individuals that are largely involved um By far and away, the most common are narcissists. And I'd like to draw a distinction between narcissists and run-of-the-mill avoidant or uh, selfish at times people. Uh, Narcissists are actually an extreme form of uh, intimacy avoidance uh, or attachment avoidance. Um, Narcissists are people who compensate for fragile self Core, core selves, which are the result of early attachment wounds where they felt emotionally abandoned by core caregivers. And so to heal these deep wounds, they construct grandiose self-concepts, which are, in other words, uh, they have this very damaged, uh, wounded internal felt selves that they protect by constructing these grandiose self-concepts, which is essentially, I am Donald Trump, the, you know, the great uh, uh, look at me. Uh, this grandiose self-concept exag- is built on exaggerated achievements and talents, and to maintain it uh, and to continue this fabrication so that the narcissist doesn't have to feel and reconnect with this deeply shattered, uh, wounded core self. It's sustained by what's called narcissistic supplies. The narcissist constantly needs attention, uh, needs to constantly be seen and validated as a way to um, ar- maintain this distracting facade, uh, this false identity, this false self, so that the core wounded part will not be experienced. Um, uh, these Narcissists are far more prevalent than most people suspect. R- roughly one in 100 uh, individuals. Uh, it's been since 1968 and the definition and the DSM, uh, whenever they've done rudimentary uh, 
analysis, uh, they find that same 1% figure. Um, narcissists are born with the capacity to empathize, but they, this capacity to empathize and be compassionate is repressed over time due to attachment wounds. Um, narcissists do, on occasion, wind up in therapy. Generally, when someone finally gets the chutzpah up to finally leave uh, and completely detach, which we'll find out is far more arduous than we might believe, but sometimes people do have the ability to walk away from the narcissist, and when enough people do it, the narcissist uh, reconnects with the wounded core self, feels depressed, and at that point might even actually go into therapy. And thanks to the work of Heinz Kohut, there are actually therapeutic tools that do help address the, the core emotional wounds. But it's a big ask, and all the factors have to be in place. Now, uh, a far more um, uh, destructive individual is the sociopath, uh, which falls under the antisocial personality disorder. And these are people who are essentially bereft of any capability for empathy. They have very little feeling for others, and they very often treat people as objects. Essentially, if you want to look at it from a neural perspective, these are people who have fully intact midbrains and amygdalas, which are this sort of cunning, manipulative, um, aggressive, and fearful parts of the brain are working perfectly fine. But the socializing part and the anterior cingulate which and the dorsal medial uh, which are the parts of the brain that allow us to feel compassion and empathy these neural structures aren't working and so that that sort of overlay of inhibition that keeps us socialized and also allows us to empathize and be kind to each other is essentially removed the capacity to feel other people's pain is largely uh, uh, not present. So these are people, though, who still have the capacity to appear charismatic, intelligent, because the parts of the brain that allow somebody to say smart things, to be charming, to uh, uh, are still very much functioning. It's just the empathetic qualities are not there. And so uh, this person can actually conceal a deeply Machiavellian uh, sort of uh, underlying, uh, I won't even call it a core self, because it's wrong to say that sociopaths have what uh, rises to the level of a core self. They have these underlying aggressive uh, manipulative impulses that can be concealed by performances. They can perform as if they're like everybody else. Um, they are far more cunning than narcissists by nature. They are uh, far less prevalent, though. Uh, we're talking about roughly half the amount of narcissists, so the estimates are roughly one out of every 200 people. Still, that's kind of a lot when you think about it. Uh, <laughs> um, 
These are people, the narcissist is working, is willing to work very hard because they're seeking essentially narcissistic supplies to maintain this false self persona that's grandiose and filled of talents and is constantly getting recognition. Uh, but they don't mind working for acclaim. The sociopath is not trying so much to maintain this facade. They're using creating a facade to lure people in so that they can then be able to uh, project and act out aggressive impulses once they've established some form of control. These are people who are far less likely to uh, actually work for um, power. They generally are people who will swindle, exploit, use, manipulate. And there's uh, a lot of studies that show in the financial industry is just completely swamped with sociopaths. Um, so narcissists by nature tend to be attracted to, to individuals who have some, who manifest some quality that they don't have. They want to be with an individual who is uh, either successful or has intellect or creativity, especially someone who has a status or a good reputation, someone who's innately happy. They can be very attracted to people who have positive worldviews. Uh, so, because these are all the qualities that very often uh, somebody with uh, NPD, narcissistic personality disorder, does not have innately. And interestingly enough, the idea, the underlying emotional idea is that they want to somehow, uh, it sounds strange when I describe it, but they want to acquire these characteristics simply by bringing their target in so that by proximity somehow these wonderful attributes will be subsumed uh, into them. Uh, and so they have a desire to get to control, to be with people who have something that they feel they need to get more narcissistic supplies. I hope you're following me, but that's, that's the gist of it. Antisocial people are simply trying to essentially uh, uh, gain control over individuals. They view interpersonal life as a kind of game that they want to master, and they have uh, deeply cunning uh, qualities that they like to enact. So um, the first way that, the first process is they tend to love bomb. I don't know if you know that term, but they tend to essentially lure individuals in by constantly showering them with praise and uh, nothing but accolades and uh, telling them how great they are. They will not empathize. So somebody they're interested in is in is sad or frustrated, they won't be able to sit and empathize. They'll simply tell the person how great they are. And there's a difference between showering somebody with compliments and praise and actually empathizing, which means being willing to sit 
and listen and feel somebody's sadness or frustration. So they can't do that, but they generally uh, will surround the person. And the next thing the narcissist does is um, they will increasingly lead the people they're interested in into isolating context. They will separate the, the target, as it were, from all of their support, all of their friendships, all of the um, individuals who would urge them to practice caution. They will essentially start criticizing all of the other pre- people in the target's life as a way to isolate them. They will um, listen very closely as the 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 person they're luring in discloses any of their weaknesses or insecurities. And they won't use it against them at first, but they have an amazing capacity to uh, remember uh, any weakness or any uh, insecurity that's shared with them, and they can, years later, use it uh, 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 to keep the person ensnared in the relationship. Uh, some therapists uh, actually compare the narcissist at this stage with the drug dealer who's handing out free supplies. You know, the first bags are free. And in this case, the, the drugs that are being handed out is just endless uh, availability, praise, uh, you know, just being there every step of the way, uh, taking the person out to dinner. The narcissist will use anything, will, uh, will shower the person with attention. And for many people who've had early attachment wounds, especially individuals from anxious attachment backgrounds where they didn't get reliable caregiving early on, this love bombing can be very intoxicating because suddenly they're getting a figure who's giving them everything that they didn't get when they were younger. And it's very, it sounds like, well, this, you know, you know, anything that's too good to be true, we should have a sense to step back from, but that's easier said than done. If somebody's been starved for love or caregiving or empathy, even though they're not really getting empathy, but they're starved for some kind of, of reassuring figure, the narcissist at the beginning of a relationship is giving that times 10. And it's a very, very difficult um, event to walk away from. Now, over time, the narcissist becomes frustrated. Why? Well, because all of the traits that they were somehow trying to magically acquire by being in proximity with their target is not actually being, they're not actually getting any of it. They still are greeted with suspicion by people they've wounded in the past. They're still not getting their endless thirst for narcissistic accolades met. They're still not being... uh, they still don't feel the positive, happy glow that their, their targets feel. They still don't have the great sterling reputation or the creativity. And so they start feeling frustrated. And at this point, 
if the narcissist was a simply run-of-the-mill avoidant, they would leave. They would just go away. But the narcissist doesn't do that. The narcissist actually, because they have so much compartmentalized anger at their early caregivers, they now start to project and deflect all of that rage onto the person they've lured in. So they actually completely flip and they start becoming extremely controlling, extremely critical, and extremely jealous, and extremely uh, isolating. And at this point, um, they start a disorienting experience for the person that they've lured into a relationship with. One, you know, a few weeks earlier, here was this figure that was saying, you're great, you're so talented, you're so smart, you deserve better friends than you have. Notice how he's, and I say he's because... uh, Statistically, we're still talking, uh, there's a, a higher uh, degree of um, men who are narcissists, uh, some, roughly around 65%. But uh, women can be narcissists too. And not only romantic partners, it can be bosses, roommates, friends, it can be... Uh, uh, in-laws, it can be, they can be anywhere. Um, but uh, at this point, the behavior of the narcissist essentially flips entirely. Now uh, they are punishing, critical, controlling, and uh, at this point they will do pretty much anything to uh, not allow the, the target to have any kind of quality of life. They'll separate them from anything that they feel good about or that gives them any self-soothing, and they will do anything they can to sabotage the person's relationships with uh, their friends. Um, so uh, this discrepancy between uh, not only the person that they and the narcissist presented themselves as versus this uh, vengeful character is there's a huge discrepancy there. But then there's another discrepancy between the narcissist and public, who still will see quite uh, charismatic and charming. And other people who meet the narcissist will have doubts about the, you know, what the, the, the person who's trapped in the narcissistic toxic relationship is experiencing. So it's even more disorienting because, uh, you have this person who behind closed doors is being cruel and controlling and manipulative, but in public is still enacting that kind of charming facade. So it's even more disorienting for the individual who's trapped in that relationship.
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so you would think that, understandably, you would think that anybody who's by this point trapped with someone who has so completely flipped in their behavior and has so completely revealed themselves to have a, um, a persona that's completely different from their public persona, that, the, that anyone trapped in a relationship with this person would get out. But remember, the target by this point has been completely isolated from their support, their friends, They've had somebody whispering in their ear for the first part of the relationship that all the people in their life are not good enough for them. They have constant self-doubt. And uh, now, at this point, the narcissist starts using all of the weaknesses and insecurities that have been the target has revealed to them are now being used against the person as well. So, um, and very often... Narcissists have, believe it or not, it sounds uh, uh, almost over the top, but they very often have accomplices that are friends who will validate the, their cruelty. Um, and uh, so it's a very, very painful, isolating, wounding experience for the person who gets caught in that web it's um and when the there's some interesting other telltale signs on top of all of uh what we've talked about already if the person who's trapped in this relation this toxic relationship calls attention to the emotional pain that they're in or the abuse that they're experiencing the abusive partner is, becomes very adept at shifting the spotlight. They'll very often say things like, well, a good partner or employee or daughter or friend wouldn't be so ungrateful. When the wounded individual will, will talk about how the, uh, the, the, the abusive partner has been... Uh, constantly um, lying or misrepresenting themselves or has uh, not shown up for any of the their responsibilities that the the person who's enacting the toxic abuse will demand specific examples and then will turn the debate to those specific examples as a way to deflect attention away from the feelings and the global statements that are being expressed. So it becomes this kind of a, uh, they develop this uncanny series of defense uh, structures to prevent um, uh, any recognition of what they're doing, and they will never, ever apologize. They will never, ever acknowledge. They will very often say, well, I apologized, but that apology will never actually have occurred. Um, so once again, just to 
go over the differences because it's very important. Um, given my work, which is with individuals who are suffering, I kind of hate it when people say I'm depressed unless they really meet the actual definition of clinical depression because they're demeaning the word. I kind of really, though, also uh, find it sometimes difficult to hear people refer to exes who were selfish as narcissistic because if you've been in a relationship with an actual narcissist or sociopath, you have really experienced something that is so far beyond the run-of-the-mill uh, relationship with somebody who's just intimacy avoided, where they were not able to commit or they were selfish. Because the selfish or intimacy-averse individual will not essentially create two completely false personas that are uh, completely the opposite, will not put on a disorienting performance, will not completely gaslight you to the point where you have very little sense of what reality is, and will not um, stay around, isolate you from all of your support, and then use all of your weaknesses and insecurities to punish you as a way to to essentially uh, have a cathartic release from all of the wounds that they experienced earlier on in their early attachment scenarios. So it's a it's by magnitude it's so much worse than simply being in an un, with a partner who won't commit. It's an actually excruciating, disorienting experience that is akin to a trauma and leaves people needing uh, not only to, you can, after you've been in a uh, relationship with, an, with a normal individual, you don't necessarily uh, struggle to leave. You don't feel like you've been completely isolated from all your support. You won't need professional help. But if you've been in a relationship with someone who um, has a, a personality disorder of the magnitude that many narcissists and antisocial characters have, then uh, the effects on your life are disastrous. Um, so uh, moving on, what do you do? Well, the first thing is get out. There's no playing around. There's no fixing it. There's no, if you've been lured into a relationship with a narcissist, you will never be able to be part of their healing. The only thing that will get them to go into therapy is when you leave the relationship and they experience fully the repercussion of the exiting, that will then result perhaps, perhaps, and them going into a therapeutic environment where they'll address uh, the core wounds and uh, over time face some possibility of healing. But you will never, ever be able to be in a safe relationship with that person. So there's absolutely no point to spend any time whatsoever if you're trapped in a toxic relationship any longer. Your job is to get out, period. And then your next job 
is to block for a while any contact because they will try to lure you back in. Guaranteed, that's the first thing that they will do. They cannot bear being left because you'll be depriving them of narcissistic supplies. So the most important thing to do is leave the job, leave the relationship, leave the friendship, whatever it is, leave the, if you're sharing an apartment, get out, block them on Facebook, on Instagram, delete their phone numbers, change your locks if they have keys. I cannot, I, it sounds like I'm going overboard maybe, but I'm trying to from... Uh, 15 years of experience of working with people who've been through this, it is not a safe environment. Uh, if you absolutely do have to meet again with someone who has uh, uh, essentially created a toxic relationship, it's essential that you bring a buffer who will hold you accountable. Never ever meet with them alone once you've started the process of detaching. Uh, playing around with someone who is um, uh, essentially enacting a projected process of punishing others due to their early attachment wounds will always, when the, their targets threaten to leave, will try to lure them back in. And you need someone to hold you accountable and to also while there's a buffer there, they won't, they won't, uh, they'll enact their charming persona because they still can't afford to be seen for who they really are. Um, now, it might sound like, you might say, well, Josh, isn't it the Buddhist thing to do to forgive, to be compassionate? Um, well, let's listen to actually, instead of what sounds like the Buddhist thing, let's actually listen to what the Buddha actually said. Spending time with evil people only brings oneself to ruin. If you do no evil but consort with someone who is malevolent or harmful, not only will your reputation be damaged, but over time associating with them will contaminate you with their ways. Never associate with a malicious or spiteful individual. That's the Idivutaka Sutta. If in your journey through life you meet those who aren't as moral as you, then continue on your course alone. There is no fellowship with harmful people. Ajahn Kamdi Pabasu, who's a famous monk, sort of summarized the Buddha's teaching about uh, which is in the Sigalavada about who to consort with and who not. He said there's two ways in the spiritual path. The good way is called associating with wise, kind people, and the wrong way is called associating with harmful people. So once you've seen that somebody's behavior is causing you harm, isolating you, is sowing mistrust of people that have been supportive is in any way um, creating or enacting two personas that are vastly in conflict with each other. There's no 
staying around in that relationship. I would, va I would strongly urge seeking a therapist if you've been in this, because whether you know it or not, you've actually been in a deeply emotionally wounding experience, and all interpersonal traumas can have lasting effects. A therapeutic environment can provide the a sense, can restore a sense of what true attachment that's safe is like and can, can create a felt sense of what it's really like to be with someone who is authentic and caring rather than with someone who's putting on a performance. And at first, after being in a relationship with a narcissist, many people will be so disoriented that they will not know how to tell the difference. I definitely urge connecting with as many friends as you can. SLAA, a wonderful 12-step program, is available to provide support. And find people who know your story to hold you accountable. Because again, uh, anyone who's been entrapped in one of these relationships, very often... Uh, people who get ensnared are people who have early attachment wounds themselves, who have anxious attachment, and they have an almost um, bewildering ability to get re-ensnared. In many ways, the, uh, the target is their own worst enemy. Uh, they will, unless they have people holding them accountable who be willing to say, things that they don't want to hear, like you cannot go back, you cannot connect with this person, you cannot see this person, they will wind up going back because they've been, they've gotten now into a disorganized relationship where they actually are seeking love and um, soothing and kindness from the very person that's caused their emotional wounds. It's important, though, after one has been through this kind of relationship, not to wind up avoiding oneself, not to give up, not to become mistrustful of other relationships. So the key is, rather than to give up, is to develop really good boundaries to protect yourself in the future. Boundaries can be taught in so many different 12-step, and they're very often the first thing that any good therapist will help uh, a client work through is developing to know what their needs are and what is the appropriate boundaries to set so that this kind of relational event won't happen again. So anyway, that's tonight's happy topic. Um, next week there'll be another one. So tonight we're going to do a meditation again based on uh, developing a felt sense of what secure attachment is like based on the early Buddhist practice of Devanusati. It's also known in contemporary therapy as the ideal parent protocol. And the goal is if you can develop a felt sense of what secure attachment is like, uh, you'll have an internal marker of what to look for in relationships. And if you meet someone who's just essentially uh, overwhelming you with praise and compliments, 
but is not empathetic or mirroring, if you have a felt sense of what security actually feels like, you'll have some kind of compass to help direct you away. So, find a really comfortable seated position. And closing the eyes and just taking a moment to make sure that your body feels in a sustainable position, letting go of any image of what you should be sitting like and just try to find a good upright balance. And if it feels appropriate, gently tilt your head a little bit back by lifting your chin just an inch or two so that it prevents your head from slouching in front of your chest. Pretty much, if your head is balanced over your shoulders and your shoulders are balanced over your hips, then everything else falls in place. And so if it feels worth it, put one hand gently on a belly so that you can feel your abdomen expand and contract. And when you feel the expansion associated with the in-breath and then Feel the gentle release of the exhalation. And one technique to establish a sense of ease is to count in your mind the length of the in-breath and then the length of the exhalation based on the actual movements or the felt sense of the in and out breath. And the ultimate goal is to subtly influence the breath so that the out breath is roughly twice as long as the in breath. The out breath is actually deeply implicated in how the vagal vagus nerve tones the amygdala or essentially deactivates the autonomic nervous system out of hypervigilance. So if you want to establish a degree of self-soothing in your practice, focus on making the breath as relaxing and slow and the out-breath as, as long as it can. So it's, it doesn't, you're not pushing out the breath, you're just releasing the breath. 
And accounting is a wonderful way to move the mind from triggering, wandering thoughts to a practice that essentially focuses your attention on something that won't trigger you. So try to bring your awareness as close to the actual sensations that are happening in this moment. Removing as much as possible that layer of thought that separates us from actual lived experience, the commenting or even the thoughts that remove us from the actual sensory environment that we're in and deposit us in a virtual reality constructed of memories or fears or daydreams. And in the second part of the meditation, there'll be actually a role for the imagination. But right now, the practice is just to soothe. And the way we do that is not by actively constructing a different reality, but actually relaxing into our present experience without any need to resist, to struggle against, to... There's nothing we're missing right now. We actually have everything we need to be at peace. We're in a safe environment.
try to while the keeping the breath as relaxed and long as possible you can bring your awareness to various parts of your body that might hold some of the stress you've acquired during busy days and overscheduled lives. So I like to just check to make sure that the micro muscles around the eyes are soft, that the jaw is not clenched. Noticing the muscles that connect the neck to the shoulders and just just whispering to them to relax and imagine that I've just put down two really heavy bags and allow the shoulders to literally fall off. There's nothing they need to hold up. And gently shift the shoulders in such a way to open up the chest. So they're gently pulled back and softening the abdominal muscles, breathing into them, making the out breath as each time we breathe out, releasing any tension there and then continuing down, relaxing any contraction in the buttocks or legs. Really, any situation or place can turn into a healing environment if we can relax the somatic experience.
So at this point, I'd like you to bring to mind a time when you were younger, when you felt the need for a figure in your life, a parent that would be kind, available, reassuring, empathetic, would understand what you were feeling, but there wasn't a adult available who was capable or willing to meet those very natural core needs. Maybe the parents were distracted or stressed, or maybe they just didn't have those capabilities. Maybe a parent, maybe our parents were devoted to something else or someone else. But in any way, our need for secure, compassionate, guidance and a stable friend was not met. And see if you can, in your mind, travel back to images associated with that time and even feelings associated with that point in our life where we were yearning for something that was not available. It could be any time, but the earlier that you can visualize very often can be associated with greater efficacy in this practice. Visualize any room or place or environment that you associate with this time of your life. See if you can connect with this desire just to have someone who is caring and willing to prioritize you And then just allow your imagination to create an image or sense or anything that creates the experience of being with an ideal parent, or friend, or guardian, or mentor. In early Buddhism, an angelic being, Deva, 
see if you can visualize what it would be like to be with someone who just wants you to feel seen and understood, who cares about what you're experiencing. who's not going to abandon you? Where would you feel that in your body? How would you experience being with someone who just wants you to be understood and safe. This is not an exciting feeling, it's a safe, easeful feeling. For some it's a sense of ease in the chest or a softening in the belly or a a kind of Subtle ease behind the eyes. There's a felt shift associated with when you get the image just right. Of an ideal parent or friend. And all we want to do is connect with that feeling of what true security with someone is like. Just create that feeling in your body of being cared for. Where is this person sitting or standing in relationship to you? What are they dressed like? What kind of expression is on their face? Once you have a felt sense of secure attachment, that can be your guide. So when you're ready, just gently let go of this visualization practice. And when you hear the sound of the bowl, just take your time 
slowly open your eyes just enough to receive light and color from the floor in front of you and see if you can integrate the visual field into an awareness that doesn't lose connection with this felt internal experience. That's what mindfulness is, a balanced awareness, knowing how we feel, knowing what's around us, not a mind that's lost in thought. 